Telehell presents Countdowns of the Damned. In these times of trouble, tragedy, and crisis, sometimes it's best to look to the simple things to keep us from going completely off the deep end. For a lot of us out there, the best way to maintain that sanity is by simply enjoying a good laugh once in a while. Television especially has enjoyed its fair share of comedic moments over the decades that people will watch again and again, simply for the fact that no matter how many times you watch it, it will never not be funny. Of course, not every sitcom ever made in the TV world is filmed in front of a live studio audience, which is unfortunate because when you're a show that's trying to make you laugh and there's no genuine reaction, these results can often range from awkward to upsetting to downright cringeworthy. Those results are brought to you courtesy of one of television's most insipid creations. Yes, the laugh track. The artificial merrymaker that's designed to condition a viewing audience to laugh at something. Even if the moment in question has about as much humor as the late Stephen Hawking trying to do stand-up comedy while trying to stand up. Oh, trust me. It's only going to get more awkward from here. Because today... We're not only going to look at just how this insipid device came to be, and came to become a staple in the world of television, but we're also going to take a look at moments when use of this device ranged from slightly awkward to wholly inappropriate. Not even a good dose of nitrous oxide will help you laugh at the top seven worst uses of the laugh track in Telehell. <laughs> While we are going to get to our list momentarily, we feel that it may be necessary to do a bit of a primer first before getting into it, because in doing research for this episode, we've discovered that the laugh track on television has had a somewhat extensive life cycle, which can only mean one thing. It's time once again for... A Telehell History Lesson. But don't worry, we promise to be brief here because there's a lot of awkwardness we gotta get through later. That said, we begin our story in a time before television even existed. Medieval Europe, the 13th century. Top torture experts at various castles across the land banded together to come up with new and exciting ways to scald intruders at their respective gates. Oh, wait, I already used that joke last week. Very well, let's try the 1940s instead. The earliest known use of a simulated audio track with recorded laughter could be traced back as far as 1945, when the owner of a rural Florida radio station, Jack Dadswell, created what was known as a laughing record, to be played at various exhibition and stage shows throughout the South whenever the crowds weren't big enough to elicit a proper response to whoever was performing on stage at that moment. 
A more refined version of the laughing record would come about one year later, when sound technician Jack Mullen brought magnetic tape from Frankfurt, Germany to the United States. These tapes would be capable of storing up to 20 minutes worth of high-quality sound, perfect to be rebroadcast over and over on various radio shows of that era. So advanced was this technology that the legendary Bing Crosby took advantage of the device so that he wouldn't have to perform his weekly CBS radio show every single week, live. But that's not all he and his company wound up doing with the tape technology. As legend has it, one of Crosby's guests one week was a southern comedian named Bob Burns. According to Jack Mullen in a 1981 interview, quote, Burns threw a few of his then extremely racy and off-color folksy farm stories onto the show. They recorded it live, and they got enormous laughs, which just went on and on. But we couldn't use the jokes. Today, those stories would seem tame by comparison. But things were different in radio then, so scriptwriter Bill Morrow asked us to save the laughs. A couple weeks later, he had a show that wasn't very funny, and he insisted that we put in the salvaged laughs. Thus, the laugh track was born." End quote. But while there was now a way to insert a sweetened sound effect into parts of a show that faced a bit of a lag, there were still a few kinks to work out of it. Cut to the 1950s and the infancy of television, and along with it, the long reign of the CBS network at number one. CBS presents this program in color. Sound technician Charlie Douglas noticed a major inconsistency with the pre-recorded laughing tracks, namely, various uses of awkward timing. Either the laughs wouldn't start at the right time, or because the technology was still somewhat primitive, the canned laughs either lasted too long between bits of dialogue, or not long enough. Fortunately, Douglas was working on a solution that would help fix those problems. While working for CBS, Douglas built a prototype laugh machine that consisted of a large wooden wheel 28 inches in diameter with a reel of tape glued to the outer edge of it, containing recordings of mild laughs. The machine was operated by a key that played until it hit another groove on the wheel, thus playing a complete laugh. However, because it was constructed on company time, CBS demanded possession of the machine when Douglas decided to terminate his time with them. The joke was eventually on CBS, however, because the prototype machine fell apart within months of use. A perfect place to add in one of those laugh tracks. <laughs> Fortunately, Douglas developed an expansion of his technique in 1953, when he began to extract laughter and applause from live soundtracks recorded, and then placed the recorded sounds into a tape machine. One that, as a further refinement, also had features built in that would allow for the track to fade in and out at more appropriate moments where needed, thus giving various TV shows a more refined production when they eventually aired. Charlie Douglas would pass away in 2003 at the age of 91, but by then, his legacy as one of the most important sound designers in show business history had become secure. Without going through all the rest of the boring details, further refinements were made to Douglas's device, which by then had gone on to have a number of colloquially quirky nicknames. The Laugh Box, the Charlie Box, the Merry Maker, and so forth. Eventually, more sounds in addition to laughter would be included with each upgrade. Things like this, and this, and let's not forget this, and of course, now cut that out, that doesn't count. But you get the idea. 
And at the risk of leaving stones unturned, we must acknowledge that the credit for adding a lot of these extra sounds, moods, and even subtle shifts and tones goes to one Mr. Carol Platt, who was a protege of Douglas and came up with his own version of the Laugh Box in the 1970s. Thus concluding our Telehell history lesson for this part of the show. Otherwise, from the 1940s all the way to this very day, Charlie Douglas's crowning achievement has been able to provide home-viewing audiences an opportunity to laugh at jokes whenever a TV show dictates it to be so. And while most of the time, the execution of the sounds were handled with expert timing, there have been a number of times throughout TV's vast history where pushing the button on the Charlie box proved to be highly questionable. Which brings us to the real reason why we're here in the first place. One that we'll get to... After the break. We've got to strengthen our knees. Strengthen our knees for comedy. We've got to strengthen our knees. Strengthen our knees for Ha! The new TV comedy network. Ha! meets comedy round the clock every day of the week. We've got to strengthen our knees. Strengthen our knees. Strengthen our knees for Ha! We've got to strengthen our knees. Strengthen our knees for comedy. We've got to strengthen our... For TV comedy round the clock, turn to Ha! The new TV comedy network. Since this is a list, we, of course, have to lay down some ground rules. Rule one. As is the case with most of our lists, they're not definitive, nor are they written in stone. Also, there's a good possibility that we're going to leave out something that we may have forgotten about anyway. If that's the case, give us a buzz on our social feeds at Telehell Podcast, and we may correct our errors at a future date. We're just limiting things to seven entries on this list because there have been so many bad examples of using the laugh track, we just don't want this to be a 19-hour show. Rule number two. While there's a good possibility that some of the shows we're about to cover were actually filmed in front of a live studio audience, that doesn't mean that those same shows aren't guilty of using obvious audio sweetening techniques to enhance them. With that said, if a show does not explicitly mention their studio audiences either through end credits or a voiceover saying so, All in the Family was recorded on tape before a live audience. Or the show uses those obvious sweetening techniques, those shows will be put under consideration. But expect those examples, if any, to be low on the list. Bearing in mind, this is really more about the artificial laughs that are obviously put into post-production. Of course, if we screw up and point out a moment that used genuine audience laughter, again, please let us know on our social feeds at Telehell Podcast. It's the only way we'll learn. Rule 3. The moments in question have to contain an obvious form of clashing. And by clashing, we mean situations where the featured laugh is added either in awkward or unnecessary ways. Say, for instance, in the middle of a dramatic moment on a sitcom, or other situations where it's completely inappropriate to include them in the first place. And rule four. More than likely, some of our candidates will be drawn from a pool of another one of the more horrid creations of the TV industry. That of the very special episode trope. Which, yes, they too will get their own day soon. But consider this to be a head start for if and when we ever get to that subject. But in terms of this subject, it's more than a coincidence that very special episodes have a high threshold for canned laughter, even at the most sensitive or poorly acted of moments. To not include any of them would be like having Laurel without Hardy. They just go together so well. 
And since this is a list, this is one of those times where we downplay our nine circles. For now, though, let's just say that the laugh track is a device that, for all its good intentions, elicits a false sense of humor to its audience, striking the bell not just for fraud, but also for heresy on account of the fact that the gods of humor are clearly being mocked thanks to this device being used as a false prophet. Plus, more often than not, a lot of these laugh track decisions are often made by the networks that air the shows in the first place, whether show creators agree with them or not. So we get a one-two punch of network wrath and treachery. Altogether, the laugh track on the whole will get four out of nine circles of telehell. And now that we got that out of the way, let's not laugh till it hurts, but rather be forced to laugh as we're hurting. Number seven. We begin this list with someone who's gifted at many things. Unfortunately, his ability to write comedy should have come with a gift receipt. Aaron Sorkin may be a genius when it comes to dramas, movies, and stage shows, but comedy may be one of those areas he needs to stay away from. You're watching Sports Night on CSC, so come on back. We're out. Two and a half minutes back. Number seven on the list is the first season of his critically acclaimed yet vastly underwatched attempt at a sense of humor, Sports Night, which aired from 1999 to the first half of the 2000 season when it got unceremoniously dumped by ABC. This was the only sitcom he ever created. And not unlike another entry later in the list, this was one of those shows that had far more serious undertones than could be expected from a half-hour sitcom. In other words, a laugh track on an Aaron Sorkin project made about as much sense as Carrot Top performing Shakespeare. Natalie's right. This is professional television. Surely there's some kind of strict procedure that's followed when something like this happens. Absolutely. What is it? Well, first, everyone stand up and see if you're sitting on it. Two minutes back. I'll find it. And before you guys go nuts, we just want to say that we here at Telehell actually legitimately enjoyed the show. We're not knocking it by any means. But while the show itself was very much an entertaining program, ABC would eventually realize too late that its audience, what little of it that was watching it in the first place, didn't need audible cues distracting them from otherwise densely told stories. You're breaking up now. Hello? You're breaking up. Now you're not there at all. There's nobody there at all. Yet I'm still talking. All right. In a 2015 interview with an Australian TV network, longtime Sorkin collaborator Thomas Schlamy, and shame on him for not referring to himself as Tommy, by the way, lamented on just how hard the battle was to keep the laugh track off the show. We, but we fought them. We, we even shot the pilot with the laugh track. It's actually a, a great lesson I learned because at that time I was still, you know, hired by Imagine and television and they, they were like, like, we'll do it with the laugh track, do the pilot that way, and then let's get on the air and then maybe we'll win the battle. Mm. And what I learned after that is win the battle before you get on the air because you'll never win it after you get on the air, so. Not that it made much of a difference considering its short time on Earth. Of course, by the time the laugh track was removed in the show's second season, people were legitimately confused as to whether this half-hour program was supposed to be funny or not. Maybe if they took some hallucinogens, they'd be able to figure that out. Ah, oh, I can see the air! And you know what else? I finally get Aaron Sorkin's Sports Night. It's a comedy that's too good to be funny. 
<laughs> Dude, you're tripping! <laughs> On the plus side, at least the West Wing started in the same year. So at the very most, Aaron Sorkin had his insurance policy in place. Number six. Number six on this list is Saved by the Bell. It's alright, cause I'm saved by the bell. No episode specifically, just Saved by the Bell. Probably the only sitcom that ever existed that all but guaranteed that not a single intentional laugh would be had in any of their half-hour installments. Of course, now we tend to laugh at the reruns these days for completely different reasons. Whether it be dated fashion, slang, or references, or the heavy-handed attempts at light-hearted life lessons. And, lest we forget, the underlying fact that, in retrospect, Zag Morris is trash! But that's in hindsight. Taken at face value, however, the show can be best described using one minor phrase as uttered by one of my comedy heroes. Not funny! And the ample use of the laugh track on this show only further drives the point home. Some of the best examples I can think of where the laugh track people got a little too carried away at Bayside High include various moments of mispitched woo. Excuse me, do you believe in love at first sight? <laughs> On the other hand, I absolutely believe in love at first sight. Random acts of violence. There you are, Zach. I've been looking all over for I... you. You time out. <laughs> time in. Oh, oh, Mr. Belkin, I'm sorry. Various con jobs in the making. Okay, what am I big for this lovely lingerie worn by Lisa while dreaming of Screech. My entire life saving soul. And let's not forget that all-time favorite, culturally insensitive appropriation. They roam the wide open plains in search of their daily food. Me hungry. <laughs> so, with all these examples of just how awkward the laugh track's inclusion is on this show, why exactly is it low on the list? Well, like we just said, we can now laugh at this show for completely different reasons. And every time they stick in one of those laugh tracks... The birds and the bees and the trees don't compare to your knees, Louise? <laughs> the show will have at long last earned a legitimate, albeit charitable laugh the honest way. After all, pointing and laughing at something still counts as laughing at something, doesn't it? Oh, do you want me to jump out of the cake, babe? <laughs> to jump into the cake while it's baking. Number five. There's a number of unwritten rules in television, the biggest of which is that sitcoms are meant to be a half hour long, while drama programs are meant to be a full hour. Not unlike Aaron Sorkin and his ill-fated night of sports, M.A.S.H. is one of those shows that we simply cannot say one bad thing about, except for one very obvious thing. You mean I can't see people? I'll want your confessions tomorrow night. Well, maybe they can write their sins down on pieces of paper and slip them under the door. Possibly. And then we can auction off the pieces of paper and make a fortune for the orphanage. For pretty much all of its run, M.A.S.H. straddled the line between the two while maintaining a 30-minute time limit for 12 years. Even though, by all accounts and purposes, it has long been considered a sitcom regardless of its dramatic undertones. Which makes the inclusion of the laugh track during its first five seasons 
slightly awkward. Radar, will you read a partial list of a few of the things we won't be getting for a while? Fuel oil, blankets, bandages, linen replacements, toilet paper. Uh-oh, that hurts. Yes, the source material, both the original book and the 1970 movie adaptation, had its moments of dark humor within the already dark themes of the Korean War. But at least the movie version had the benefit of not having a laugh track in the hopes that the audience would be able to figure out which parts were supposed to be the funny ones or not. This isn't a hospital! It's an insane asylum! And it's your fault! But for the first five years of the series, a similar mindset was in place that ultimately doomed Aaron Sorkin's show a few years later. The fact that because the show is a half hour, and it happens to air in a block of programming that was wall-to-wall -wall comedy, that the network asked the show to follow suit in trying to condition people to laugh. Much to series creator Larry Gelbart and show developer Gene Reynolds' chagrin. And yet, for the show's first five seasons, they had to put up with it anyway. And sometimes in the most unlikely of places. Who put water in my gun? How you know it's water? This isn't even... Where is my gun? We sold it. We beat it into plowshares. Oh, it's not funny hiding a person's weapon. <laughs> Thankfully, cooler heads eventually prevailed, and the laugh track was dishonorably discharged from season six and onward. And let's just be glad that they decided to cease using the laugh tracks there, because I shudder to think how their final episode years later would have turned out if they kept them. She killed it. She killed it. Oh my god. Oh my god. I didn't mean for her to kill it. I, I just wanted it to be quiet. It was a baby. She, she smothered her own baby. As we just mentioned in the MASH entry, one of the unwritten rules of television is that a sitcom is supposed to be 30 minutes, while a drama is usually an hour long. But for our number four entry, we need to emphasize the word usually, because even dramas have certain exceptions to the rule. By all accounts and purposes, the Love Boat is often considered to be a drama program, partly because for most of its run on TV, the show usually aired at 10 p.m., a time slot that, nine times out of ten, often gets filled by dramas to begin with. But there's a stark difference between The Love Boat and other shows that are of a grittier nature that often call 10 p.m. their home. In other words, you wouldn't see shows like SVU at an earlier hour, Save for that one year where it had to move to 9 p.m. because, heaven forbid, NBC didn't want to go through Jay Leno withdrawals. That being said, I think we can all consider The Love Boat to be, at best, a light drama. Yes, it had its moments of levity, but at its heart, it's still a show about people falling in and out of love in various circumstances, most of which are certainly not wacky in their ways. Fantastic cereal. Oh, thanks. Anytime you want to borrow it, just ask. Thanks. If I have the headphones on, you better ask loud. <laughs> you too, Captain. I have some really terrific tapes. Thanks, but rock music isn't exactly my thing. My dad still thinks Fleetwood Mac is a hamburger chain. I never thought Fleetwood Mac was a hamburger chain. I thought it was a Cadillac. <laughs> the same could be said for another 70s TV staple, the original Seventh Heaven, known as Eight is Enough. Oh, eight is enough to 
fill our lives with love. What does it say? I can't read it. Roses are red, violets are blue. Take two aspirins, call me in the morning. <laughs> Granted, the use of the laugh track there is far more subtle. But the point remains, why would an hour-long drama program, whether it has lighthearted moments or not, even have a laugh track on it in the first place? Listen, as I record your last report card, a tutor would be a lucky break. Gee, two breaks in one day. As you probably guessed, this is one of those selections that's up on the list due to reasons of principle. Unless it's a variety show from the 60s and 70s, an hour-long program should not have a laugh track. We're not saying they can't, but as sure as the sky is blue, Santa Claus's suit is red, and oranges have some shade of orange in them, hour-long TV series should not have laugh tracks, no matter how good their intentions are. And the same goes for our next pick. Number three. If you're a four-camera sitcom that's filmed without an audience, at least you know why you need the laugh track. But if you're a show that relies on hand-drawn and painted animation, is impossible to put on in front of a live audience, and you still need to condition the home audience to laugh at certain times, you're missing the point entirely. Granted, not all cartoons with a comedic slant can make everybody laugh. But the very idea of an animated series using a laugh track reminds me of this old Simpsons joke. Yes, is this episode going on the air live? No, Homer. Very few cartoons are broadcast live. It's a terrible strain on the animator's wrist. The point being, that animated series should not ever have to use the laugh track. The audience is not that stupid. And yet, the people at longtime Toon Factory Hanna-Barbera thought to themselves, if we added a laugh track to our shows, then the audience will have no choice but to think we're funny! Hey, Scooby! Scooby, Scooby-Doo, looking for you. Scooby, Scooby-Doo, where are you? How wrong they were. Which is why the 1970s Hanna-Barbera cartoons takes a seat at number three on our list. That was a wild shot, Curly Baby. What can I say? It's a case when the fans love that man. Boom! What'd that say? What'd that say? Much to our shock, we've discovered that at least 40 shows that the Hanna-Barbarians put together not only used the laugh track, but they actually opted not to use Charlie Douglas's laugh box, and instead used their own custom-made devices to make the sounds. Believe it or not, the sounds they used were even worse than anybody who used Douglas's device or even Carol Platt's mostly because they use the same audio tracks. Over... Where is he? Where's that dumb shark that looks like me? <laughs> huh? And over... <laughs> looks like he's developed a taste for photography. Yeah, he wants seconds! And over... It all started when this train came roaring through here and... A, a train came roaring through here? Without ever freshening the sounds over time. This problem was so noticeable that in the mid-1990s, sound engineer Paul Iverson lamented on the lack of versatility, saying, quote, The Hanna-Barbera laugh track did more to give laugh tracks a bad name than Douglas's work could ever have done. Using the same five or so laughs repeatedly for a decade does not go by unnoticed, no matter how young the viewer is. All it takes is watching an episode of Josie and the Pussycats alongside Josie and the Pussycats in Outer Space, and it's painfully obvious. 
It's a shame that a company as powerful as Hanna-Barbera, who at its peak practically owned Saturday mornings, thought so little of their audience by dubbing in such an inferior laugh track for so long a period." End quote. Well, he has a point. Having a laugh track on an hour-long light-hearted drama is one thing, but putting them in cartoons that are not filmed in front of a live or even animated studio audience is all but pointless, and it's even lazy considering just how few laughs there are to interchange between the shows. That, and let's also not lose sight of the fact that it's a laugh track being used in cartoons! Seriously, if you're supposed to be an animated comedy series and you need a laugh track to accentuate yourself, then perhaps the show that you're using it on was never funny in the first place. Unless, of course, you're high as balls as you're watching it. Listen to that shaggy go! Now, here's a snack for you, Scooby. <laughs> Whereas the previous entries dealt more with misplacements and awkwardness, the last two entries on this list deal with pure cringe when it comes to how their shows use the laugh track. Truth be told, I was considering flipping a coin between this one and the next show to decide which one would get the number one spot. Because between that moment and this one, there are certain levels of cringe that are only punctuated to both new highs and new lows thanks to the use of the laugh track. But after watching both of these shows back to back, I quickly realized that flipping a coin might not be necessary. Because while each of these shows stand out in their own unique way over how rampant the laugh track is used, this next show somehow still managed to take the high road in the grand scheme of things. Streaks on the China never mattered before. Who cares? You know what this song is the theme song to Mr. Belvedere, a song that ironically turned out to be the best-known song of Leon Redbone's entire career. But that's not what this is about. This is about an episode that took place in 1986, just as one of the most insidious diseases known to mankind was just beginning to grab the attention of the world. Everyone has AIDS! Sorry if that's in bad taste, I'm just trying to lighten the mood, as best as I can, because this is about to get really dark really fast. As the story goes, one of Wesley's friends at school contracts the disease through means that are not quite explained at first. The audience takes the news thusly. You know my friend Danny O'Neill, the one you all like so much because he never does anything wrong? He was supposed to play Lincoln, but his parents had to come and take him home. Why? He got caught with this stuff called AIDS. AIDS? Oh my god. Boy, he must really be in trouble. <laughs> a little more information comes through during the show, and the audience continues to react accordingly. Listen, Wes, this uh, AIDS thing you told us about, do you know what that is? Sure. I mean, it's real bad, and you get in real bad trouble if you get caught with it. So like shoplifting. <laughs> you saying you might be sick for a whole week? Maybe two. Boy, no school, lucky duck. <laughs> I mean, you don't catch that stuff from just fooling around. <laughs> I mean, uh... Wesley, what I think your father's trying to say is, 
You don't catch AIDS by simply being around someone who has it. These reactions culminate in what has gone down in history as probably one of the single most awkward insertions of laughter in this or any other television series. And that's intentionally. Everyone, you remember Wesley's friend, Danny? Oh, hi, Danny. Hi, Mrs. Owens, Mr. Owens. Hiya, champ. How's it going? Well, I got AIDS, but other than that, I'm doing pretty good. <laughs> Thankfully, the only reason why this show doesn't claim the top spot was because they ease up on the laugh track after that particular moment. And the show eventually gets down to the business of setting the record straight on a disease that people were still back then trying to fully understand. What I think everybody is trying to say is the way you get AIDS is from sexual contact or using infected needles or getting contaminated blood products, which is how your friend Danny got it. You understand? I think so. Well, if you didn't know anything else, I'll be upstairs. <laughs> we get the usual tips on how you can't get AIDS by kissing or holding hands, that it's usually contracted by sex, or that in the case of this episode, the victim wound up getting it as the result of a bad blood transfusion. Of course, that was all the information we knew about in 1986. Medical science has evolved a great deal since then, and more treatments have become available to help curb its spread. Does that make the use of the laugh track in such an episode excusable? There's not one thing on AIDS in this whole stupid encyclopedia. George, this edition was printed in 1957. <laughs> yeah, well, we should have planned ahead. Certainly not. But at least this show was able to save a little face, which is far more than I can say for the subject at the top of our list. <laughs> While the Belvedere AIDS episode had painfully awkward laugh track inclusions, at least the episode itself ended with a bit of hope and information that would be easy for the viewer to digest no matter how uncomfortable it may have been to watch in certain places. This next show, to its credit, also does that, as most very special episodes tend to do. But because of just how rampant the laugh sweetening was used on this particular subject, I honestly couldn't see anything but this show sitting at the top of the list. Now the world don't move to the beat of just one drum. What might be right for you may not be right for some. Oh yeah, we're going there. Up until a certain point in my life, I legitimately thought that this was just one of those throwaway jokes from Family Guy. My, my favorite episode of Different Strokes was on. You know the one where Arnold and Dudley get sexually molested by the guy who owns the bike shop? All right, now I want you boys to scream real loud at my ass. And everybody learns a valuable lesson. How wrong I was. Because this is an episode of television that actually happened. And before you call me out on the rules, yes, it's my understanding that Different Strokes was indeed filmed before a live studio audience. But once again, that didn't stop them from adding some audio sweetening to what the audience was watching that day. So much sweetening, in fact, that it'll seem pretty obvious that no sane human being would willingly laugh at some of the situations that are presented here. For those who are blessed not to have seen this episode yet, this program aired in 1983. In the episode, the owner of a bicycle shop, played by Gordon Jump, who was fresh off the end of the original WKRP in Cincinnati, takes a particular shine to Gary Coleman's Arnold and his friend Dudley. And when we say shine, we mean a giant flashing neon one that says, GET OUT NOW! 
And again, the message of the episode is a pretty frank one that many people should be able to teach their young ones about. But it's the way it's being presented that earns this show a top spot at number one. Join us now as we present, in no particular order, all of the awkward laughs that this program decided to present to us. Endure. What's the old saying? You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. You keep coming up with this present, you can scratch me all over. That is great, Arnold. You sure some terrific pass around it. I have a way with words when I put my mouth to it. That's really great, Arnold. I can see it now. Hundreds of kids stampeding into my shop. They're buying everything in sight. They're buying the bicycles. They're buying the posters. They can't stop buying. Now they're buying my clothes. They're buying my socks. They're buying my shirt. They're buying my pants. You better buy a barrel before they buy your underwear. I bet you're a whipped cream man, too. Yeah. We'll buy that whipped cream up there. Boy, look at that. And I just know you're not going to be satisfied until you've got a cherry right on top there, huh? Yeah. Arnold, this is the tallest, the, the, the sweetest, the gooeyest, the stickiest, and the, the most disgusting banana split I think I've ever made. I think I'm gonna cry. <laughs> I'm gonna eat it before it melts. Oh, don't worry. The way I eat it, it won't have a chance to melt. My tongue is faster than a hummingbird's wing. <laughs> Man, he sure has a lot of comic books. Yeah. <laughs> We should look at this one? Of course. <laughs> the ladies are naked. <laughs> Except for the leather boots. <laughs> they ought to give you a diaper with these things. <laughs> Say, look at this. Cuties of the circus. Hey, this guy must be afraid of that girl. He's holding her off with a whipping chair. <laughs> Hey, look at that circus girl. Now I know why they call it the big top. <laughs> you know, most of the famous statues are naked. Yeah, but at least they had fig leaves. The one in the magazine didn't even have a piece of parsley. <laughs> I just have an awful lot of fun with your clothes off. Unless, of course, you live at the North Pole and they're gonna freeze your tush off. <laughs> Either you guys ever go skinny dipping? Nah, I never done that. Me neither. Unless you want to count the time when the fire hydrant blew my pants off. <laughs> hey, you don't have any clothes on either. <laughs> I don't think I'd like the idea of running around and everybody staring at my bare butt. <laughs> Sorry, I don't have a tail for you to hang on to. That's okay. You can just wag you behind. <laughs> okay, here we go. Maybe we should have a, a little more wine. No, thanks. I'd rather get bitten on the titsy. <laughs> I'd really appreciate it if you didn't let him have any more wine when he's over here. Wine? Well, obviously, Arnold and Dudley are experimenting with alcohol. I don't like that. Well, neither do I. They're still babies. Well, it looks like the babies have gone from the nipple straight to the ripple. Well, 
He came to discuss something that I found quite informative. Oh, what's that? You and Dudley hitting the bottle. What you talking about, Dad? <laughs> he showed us some pictures. Everybody was naked. <laughs> naked? And he showed us some kinky cartoons. <laughs> what do you mean by kinky? Well, you told me about the birds and the bees, but that's nothing compared to what those mice were doing. <laughs> Thanks to your father calling us, we were able to surprise him, and we found some very incriminating pictures. Worse than the mice? <laughs> Much worse. I'm only 11 years old. Should I be hearing all of this? <laughs> Absolutely, Arnold. <sighs> La ladies and gentle demons, I really don't need to elaborate any further. You just heard probably the cringiest of moments ever put to PictureTube, made even cringier by the fact that the people behind the show saw it necessary to condition the audience to laugh at things that would be par for the course on any given Law & Order series. Looks like the victim had anal contusions. <laughs> Yo, looks like we found semen and fecal matter in the victim's ear canal. Those are two real things that I heard on Law & Order SVU at three in the afternoon. Except this was supposed to be a sitcom. And once again, we can see that at least this show was trying to teach its viewers an important message, but it certainly could have been done without the laugh track. You know, I didn't like the things Mr. Horton was trying to do in the bicycle shop, but some hugs and kisses are still okay. <laughs> And thankfully, two years later, Different Strokes would learn its lesson about handling sensitive topics when they did an episode about one of the kids getting kidnapped, and the show wisely decided to give the laugh track operator the week off. You get this straight, Sam. This is your family from now on. And stay away from that telephone. You step out of line just once. Can you remember what I told you I would do? I will kill your parents, Sam. But... You... Hear me and understand me. Yes, sir. The key point to take away from these entries, and possibly the other ones that we missed, there's a right time to laugh at things, and there's a wrong time. These seven examples are clearly moments where it happened at the wrong time, but even we realize that we may have missed moments or two that felt more deserving of our scorn. And if there was a moment that we missed, we invite you to give us an earful on our social feeds, Twitter and Facebook, at Telehell Podcast. And hopefully in the future, we'll do another list of things that are worth laughing at for all the wrong reasons. Just try to stay away from bicycle shops from now on, okay? Next time on Telehell, with all the cooping up we've been doing around here lately, I think it's time that we did a little spring cleaning around here. Hi, uh, are you looking for housekeeper? You're hired. Until then. If it's not a telehell, it's not worth a damn. Telehell was written, produced, edited, and narrated by me, Justin Hart. All clips used in this program are protected under the Fair Use Doctrine of the U.S. Copyright Act of 1976, and all clips used come courtesy of their respective companies and owners. Some of the music used in this program comes courtesy of YouTube and their audio library service. 
Telehell is a production of Horton Road and is distributed by Libsyn. There's now more ways to listen to Telehell than ever before. Of course, the usual ways, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and our website, telehell.libsyn.com, but also these new places, including castbox.fm, podtail.com, listennotes.com, mytuner-radio.com, and blueberry, which is spelled B-U-L-B-R-R-Y.com. We'll have many more coming soon. And as always, don't forget to like, comment, rate, subscribe, and share on our social feeds. Twitter and Facebook, both at Telehell Podcast. 